You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. Hi, I'm Matt. Hi, I'm Simon. Hi, I'm Lee. <laughs> we can't do that all the way through. <clears throat> oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, I was quite looking forward to that. <laughs> you sound quite like Lee, so maybe he doesn't listen to the podcast, does he? No, so we can say anything we there's, like about him. there's no point in... <laughs> there's no point in pretending that Lee and Simon yeah. are here yeah. when they're not. Yeah, Simon was almost here. Well, when you say almost... Presumably, he never actually got anywhere near close to being here. Last I heard, he was taking a paracetamol, so that's never a good sign. All right, let's forget about Simon and Lee. <clears throat> no reviews this week. Oh, good. There'll be reviews next week. Okay. This week, we just devote the entire time to the list. Right. What's the subject this week? Well, this week's list is the top ten Doctor Who writers. Oh, that would be more interesting. <laughs> more interesting than Simon and Lee. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't oh, know. Oh, they're, they're missing the. Uh, they're missing the. A genuinely interesting podcast. One. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess so. And also, this is new series and classic series. Okay, so this could be a mixture. And this is the penultimate in our autumn top ten series of top tens. Okay. So we've got one more to go. Does that mean there's going to be a spring top ten of top tens as well? No. And then a summer one. (laughs) I don't know why this has turned into a top ten of top tens. That was completely by accident. Yes. I didn't really have it planned. But as it goes, it's filled in the autumn quite nicely, hasn't it? Yeah. We've only only got another year to go before. Oh, no, there's a Christmas special, isn't there? I was forgetting about that. Yeah, but also we're supposed to be, well, I've been saying that we will watch series six. Yes. And do the Series 6 reviews. And we're still watching the John Pertwee stories as well. At some point. <laughs> Did you see the trailer? for the? Uh, or are we going to talk about that? The Christmas special? Yeah. What trailer? The Children in Need trailer. Oh, well, it's not trailer, is it? The well, scene. Just, yes. The scene. <clears throat> yeah, by the time anybody hears this, it'll be slightly old news. Go on, then. What did you think? I, I quite liked it. I'm not convinced by J- David Bradley's performance. He was more like William Hartnell than I was expecting him to be. <clears throat> I, think, I wasn't really I expecting him to be much like William Hartnell. I'm, I think it's going to be fine watching the overall episodes yeah, and yeah. getting used to it. In that one scene, half my head is still in an adventure in space and time, and the other half is what, thinking of him as a character. So I'm sort of still watching him as William Hartnell playing the Doctor, mm. and it's slightly disjointed. I think. And I don't, so I don't the, think it's the performance. I think it's more my my expectations of it. Once you get into the story of it, though, yeah. assuming yeah. that you do get into the story of it, eventually you'll forget and just start watching the Hopefully. characters. Yeah, yeah. I wonder how far into the episode that comes. Because presumably it's quite close to the start, but they've picked up Mark Gatiss by this point. Yeah. And Mark Gatiss isn't going to be at the Antarctic. So they're going to have to have made at least one trip. So there's going to be uh, presumably two kind of 
not pre-title sequences, but two sort of opening sequences. One has to be um, Tenth Planet. Presumably. Because they've reconstructed it. And the other has, well, has to be Mark <clears throat> Gatiss's introduction. Tenth, tenth Planet can happen in flashbacks throughout. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Maybe. I still think it would be nice if the pre-title sequence was previously on Doctor Who and it was just yes. the Tenth Planet in two minutes. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's possible. I mean, Wherever they pick up Mark Gages and Toby Whithouse is in that scene as well. Yes. That has to be pre this. So yes. this has got yeah. to be at least five minutes or so into the episode, I would have thought. Yes. And and this is the bit that's immediately pretty much picked off. So Capaldi and William Hartnell's doctor, or David Bradley's doctor, aren't going to be wandering around in the snow for that long. So they must pick up Mark Gages very quickly. And then bring him into the TARDIS, you'd assume. Well, yeah, but the, my question is more. This is William Hartnell, first Doctor's first step inside mm. Capaldi's yeah. TARDIS. So presumably they take both TARDISes to the First World War. And we've seen a photograph from set of the two TARDISes next to each other. Mm. So... It's slightly odd that they take both TARDISes to the same place immediately. Do we, do we know that, or is is um, Mark Gatiss <coughs> somehow brought to the Antarctic? No, we know that. We do. Mark Gatiss and Toby Whithouse yes. are in a bunker. Yeah, or a bomb crater. Or a bomb yeah. crater, rather, together. Yeah. Yes. And that's where they first meet him. Right. And there's a photo of the two TARDISes standing next to each okay. other. Okay, okay. So well, they... So we'll both TARDISes go to the First World War, yeah, and then they go on in the Capaldi TARDIS. Right, okay. Presumably. Okay. okay. Seems like an odd thing. Maybe the Hartnell Doctor says, hmm, I don't know what you're talking about, when he meets Capaldi's Doctor, yes. gets in his own TARDIS and goes off, and Capaldi follows him yes. in his TARDIS. Yes, maybe. Well, I'm sure we'll find out. But then why would the First Doctor go off without Ben and Polly? Yes. It's all a bit rum. <laughs> I mean, once you get into the story, yes, presumably yes, it, it all makes tie, sense. It will Surely this is Stephen Moffat and it will tie together perfectly. Well, it'll tie together. This scene <clears> might <throat> not even be in the final episode. Oh, I'm assuming it will be. <coughs> Should we talk about the top ten writers? Okay. We didn't do the news thing that we were going to do last week, but blimey, it's so far on now from the unveiling oh, of the, the costume. costume. Mm. My brother wasn't impressed. I was fine. <clears throat> it's fine. I'm no expert in costumes. Well, the high waist and high ankle things very in fashion at the moment, apparently. Yes. Yeah. And since I saw the picture of the costume, I've started noticing people wearing that right. sort of thing. Yes. So presumably yeah. they were wearing it before. But I also think... People tend to react to these things as if they'd react to the announcement of Colin Baker's costume or um, yeah, yeah. McCoy's costume. Whereas now these things change story by story. I mean, it won't change dramatically. The shape may stay, <clears throat> may stay the same, or it may change. I mean, the, the 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 whole series is going to change. So why not the approach to what the Doctor wears? Well, presumably the reason they did a press release about the costume was because they're about to start filming. Yes. And even though they're stamping down on these things more than they have in the past, mm. set photos are going to leak. And so far, the, the filming's entirely been in Capaldi's 
costume. So they're filming the first episode first. Um, yes, maybe. Well, no, it is. <coughs> no, the one I've seen is. Uh, yes, but all you've seen is one photo on one day, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. So that day was in Capaldi's yes. costume. Yeah. You don't know what yeah. else has happened. Yeah. So we don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> we know that they filmed a bit in Capaldi's yes. costume. I think because they released the image and said, "Here's the Doctor's new look." I think that that has sort of two meanings: either the costume, or it's the new sort of visual style or feeling for the series, the tone for the series. And that's um, what I picked up from the the photograph. Right, kind of what I natural lightness. And what essence. I took from the photograph is this is the one that you're likely to see in spoiler photos. Right. Yeah. So, in between now and whenever. Mm-hmm. Presumably, if there are going to be other things as well, we'll get to hear about them before they happen. But presumably, in between now and such time as we do, this is what we'd be likely to see if there were spoiler photos. Right. So, what that means about all the other rumours about there being three different Doctors. Mm. Jodie Whittaker playing three different versions of the same Doctor, which is the rumour that came out. Yeah. Presumably... Unless that's confirmed, which it should be very shortly if it's yeah. true, because that was going to be a Radio Times story, which would right. be probably tomorrow as we're recording okay. this. Right. Mm. So people might know whether that's true or not by now. Okay. But but <clears throat> the costume that they did the press release for is what we'd be likely to see in spoilers. Okay. So that's what. So that's mainly what she'll be wearing for the foreseeable future. I would imagine. Should we do the writers? Okay. <clears throat> Shall I tell you that of all the writers, and I said they had to have done three stories or more in order mm. to, uh, you know, for people to vote for them, because I thought if right. they'd done fewer than three, it just wasn't a big enough right. example to... Uh, and you made one exception for a writer that didn't do any... Yeah, because I included all the script editors in the okay, list okay. because of the amount of influence they had yeah. over the writing. No, I am sensible, yeah. <clears throat> but Terence Studley got no votes. No. Pip and Jane Baker got no votes. Good. <laughs> um, Stephen Thompson. Peter Harness got no votes. He did the Zygon okay. two-parter. Okay. Um, There's a lot to choose from. There are a lot to choose from, and but the numbers stand out. So, well, yeah, but Gareth Roberts got no votes. Yes, um, but Ian Stewart Black did. Peter Cot- Grimway did. Cottrell Boyce wasn't eligible. No, no, okay. Um, David Fisher only got a couple of votes. Brian Hales also is very low on the list. Yeah, Mark Gatiss is also very low on the list. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> Terry Nations also very low on the list. <sighs> Slightly further up, Bob Baker and Dave Martin. I'll mm. tell you who's very low on the list: Barry Letts and Robert Sloman. Well, that's a shame. Yeah, I mean they're, they're pretty solid stories, considering. <laughs> <laughs> I don't suppose, outside of the demons, they really have the best reputation, do they? Green Death, Green Death, yeah. and Planet of the Spiders. Uh, Planet of the Spiders is one of those fond memories, but don't yeah. think much of it as a story. No, maybe not really. Um, Chris Chibnall slightly further up the list mm-hmm. on the same number of points as Christopher H. Bidmead and Toby Whithouse. Right. Well, there you go. Chris Chibnall, Toby Whithouse, and Christopher H. Bidmead all on the same number of points. 
So Bitme is perhaps less successful than, for instance, the placing of season 18 previously might have led us to expect. Yes. Uh, nevertheless, John Lucarotti is uh, not too far outside the top 10. Right. Adrian Sturrock said John Lucarotti, oh. <laughs> <clears throat> not a writer, <laughs> Adrian write? Sturrock. <laughs> says John Lugarotti should earn a spot in the top five courtesy of three beautifully intricate scripts but most likely won't due to nothing existing of two of them mm. I would have loved to see him write for another Doctor although to be fair it's kind of widely suspected widely uh, suggested that David Whittaker no Donald okay. Tosh Donald Tosh okay wrote The Massacre right Okay. Rewrote it from John Lucarotti's script. Right. Nevertheless, Marco Polo and the Aztecs, of course. So going by the Aztecs, of. if <coughs> and I've listened to Marco Polo and the writing is, you know, <coughs> for what it is, it's a very good story. I think. Yeah, I didn't get bored listening to it, and considering it's an epic. I did think afterwards, <clears throat> maybe it should have been four stories and more. Anyway, because I'm right. still not entirely convinced that three stories gives you a big enough slice of Doctor Who. To really be an indication. Yeah. Um, just outside the top ten, Jamie Matheson, mm-hmm. and just below him in twelfth place, Eric Saywood. Which, yeah, you've got the. <laughs> he's all right. He, no, he's he, not. But I'm surprised he's not higher. He writes done. a particular type of well, story, yes. not a, not particularly Doctor Whoy type of story, but he writes a particular, and his dialogue's always very. I mean, the visitation, the dialogue is very... Well, visitation is probably a little bit better because um, Michael Robbins brings a bit of something to it. Yeah. And Revelation of the Daleks, the cast bring a bit of something to it as well. Mm -hmm. It's very functional in some of the other stories. Um, Anyway, he's in 12th place. Jamie Matheson's in 11th. Um, I did do the spread on this. Right. But the spread's been thrown slightly out of whack because after I said the voting's closed, somebody else voted. Oh, okay. So I did the spread, printed off the sheet, and then had to change things slightly. So uh, some of these figures are slightly off, but this is the spread according to all but one of the votes that was cast. Okay, using your internet calculator. Mm Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you the spread as it was, but I am going to change the positions according to this vote that came in late. Okay, are you doing that now or <clears throat> as we go? If you um, could, if you could describe the spread now in one block, I can go and make a cup of tea and then come back. No, this spread's the most interesting thing. Okay, we all know who's going to win this vote, right? The most interesting thing, surely, is by how far. Well, I mean, the, okay, there's an interesting question: who else is in the top ten and in one, what positions? Okay, but insofar as. The drama about who wins the vote is surely the question is by how far. <clears throat> I would have said the interesting thing is what we say about the different writers rather than where they've come. People the aren't listening to this to hear what we've got to say about them, they just want to know how the voting went. Really? Oh, really? Okay. That's how charts work now. Okay. Um, in 10th position. And I can't tell you on what percentage of the vote because he was the ones who moved, but roughly on about six, just under six percent of the vote is Dennis Spooner. Okay. 
which I was quite pleased about. So we're talking, um, I'm going to have to be reminded, so we're talking Time Meddler, Romans... Reign of Terror. Reign of Terror. Yeah, and script editor. So he brought a sort of a... He was uh, he was the first person to bring a fresh voice to Doctor Who. He was the first person to well, kind it was of early re- enough reboot to, the tone. Uh, yeah, he did, in, in spite of the fact that this was still within the first year. Yes, yeah. Yes, he did. He, he was... Well, Terry Nation was writing Pulp Fiction... But uh, Dennis Spooner was the first one who said, well, you know, it can be fun and funny. Yes, yeah. And that did change the tone Mm -hmm. of the series because prior to the Reign of Terror, and the Reign of Terror has not got a huge amount of comedy in it, but it does have some. Yes. Most especially the stuff with the jailer. Mm. But even then, William Hartnell's doctor... um, crocking somebody across the back of the head with a rock on the road to Paris... Is kind of still done for comedy, and it's it's interestingly paralleled with an unearthly child when he nearly <clears throat> and there's a drama where he nearly does it for real with a caveman, mm-hmm. and then a year later he's doing it. He in actually does effects. it, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and the time meddler is really a really unusual story for the time, and one that shapes Doctor Who as we know it from that point. Um, this kind of ye- mix, mixture of historical and yeah, yeah, sort of. Well, the pseudo historical. Yeah. Yes, that just change. Uh, there's a lot of changes taking place throughout the first few years, mm-hmm. of course. So Dennis Spooner brings something that may have taken slightly longer to appear. Mm. I think the big story that changes things is Dalek Invasion of Earth. Right. I think that's the story that changes what Doctor Who's about. Right. But the time meddler kind of puts a pin in that. And says, yeah, okay. I mean, the time meddler introduces... The time meddler is the one that blurs the distinction between the historical stories and the science fiction stories. Yeah. The the Dalek Invasion of Earth does another type of Doctor Who story, which is playing with genre. So it's setting Doctor Who in the genre, which is the the apocalyptic sort of Uh, war war movie genre. That's not what it changes. Right. The Dalek Invasion of Earth changes what Doctor Who is because the Daleks come back. Right. Originally, the idea of Doctor Who is every week, different place, new cast, nothing can return. Yes. TARDIS doesn't know yeah. where it's going, so you can't have yeah. characters appearing more than once. Right. Dalek Invasion of Earth is the moment where the people making the programme say, well, hang on, if something's popular, we can't just ignore it. Right. And that... The idea that if something's popular, you can't just ignore it yes. is what changes what the series is. Yes, but in a different <clears> way to the actual type of story. We're talking about type of... I was talking well, about type is. of story. Yes, but the type of story, essentially... Okay, it's set in the future, but basically it's set in the 1960s. Yes. In fact, it's set in the late 1940s. Dalek Invasion of Earth is, to all intents and purposes, apart from the date... An alternative history. It's what happens if the Nazis win World War Two. Yes. Except yeah. the Daleks. Yeah. <coughs> Although the 1960s are like the 1940s in London. I mean, that's the point. That's, well, um, that's what it looks yeah. like. Mm. Okay. That's Dennis Spooner. <clears throat> but where, yeah, Dennis where, Spooner. Where did he come? Tenth. Tenth. Oh, good. But Dennis Spooner yeah, is the off. guy who uh, takes what's happening and accelerates it. Mm-hmm. So when you've got in the time meddler another member of the Doctor's species turning up, mm. which again is something that you wouldn't have had uh, according to the original 
sort of format of the program where you can't arrive where you want to arrive mm. and you can't be in the same place twice. Bringing in another member of the Doctor species is again another way of saying, well, hang on, if we want to do something, we can ignore the rules and do it. Mm. So it's all about breaking the rules. Yeah. Or forming new rules. Okay. And leaving the old ones behind. Um, in ninth place, on 10% of the vote, is Andrew Cartmel. Oh, good. I'm glad he got in there. <clears throat> oh, he would have been higher at one point. He was right. up to about, as the votes were coming in, at one point he almost looked like he might be top five. Right. But then this is mad, the way these things go. I mean, Cartmel is, is sort of, he's... I get the impression that he's he's rising at the moment, or maybe he's reached the the zenith of of rising, rising and in so, stature yeah, and uh, appreciation. And so, certainly, certainly after the nineteen nineties, I think that's the period where where you kind of get the the McCoy years consolidating, and now they're entering this kind of nostalgic phase. So it's long ago to be nostalgia, and the nostalgia is for the nineties well, novels blurred <clears throat> with the McCoy. Era novels, so Carmel yeah. is almost Carmel's almost responsible for the new adventures as well. Well, he's the guy who um, decided what Doctor Who was going to be like for three years. Yeah, the kind of stories they were going to tell, and in the new adventures, they do essentially keep telling those kinds of stories. Yeah, yeah. slightly more angled towards teenage readers. Yes, and but, and drawing on things like um, Alan Moore and, and comic books, that kind of. Almost an ongoing serial feel. And yeah. with the companion mm-hmm. um, elevated more to um, the kind of level that the new series has done. Yeah. Up until Ace comes along, the companion is still somebody who's just there to ask what's going on, yes. get in trouble and wander off and all this kind of yeah. stuff. Ace is the first one who actually they start telling stories about. Yes, yeah. And also... <clears throat> so he's got this kind of what feels like a fresh approach to the series, but he doesn't do what I mean. Bidmead had a fresh approach to the series, but sort of lost a lot of the things that define what the series was. Whereas Cartmel, you still get traditional stories. So there's something about Remembrance of the Daleks and the Curse of Fenric that feel Doctor Whoy, hmm. and he's very good at combining that with his new approach. Yes, and there's something about. And Ghostlight, which I'm, uh, I'm on a Ghostlight kick in my head for some reason. Ghostlight f- feels really traditional in terms of the setting, but the but complexity of the story, things, the yeah. tone, <clears throat> and yes, we're, we're talking about Andrew Cartmel, but there's there's also a modern way that they seem to write the script. So when we talk about the first series in 2005 of Doctor Who coming back, it felt a little like that sort of atmosphere amongst the writers was like the atmosphere that Cartmel inspired amongst the writers. Writers getting together, talking about their stories, well, and collaborating together. <clears throat> the last time that had happened was under Barry Letts and Terence Sticks. Yeah. Where they kind of had the same thing going on. Yeah. And actually, you look over the history of Doctor Who, and the only other time that the series, apart from slightly maybe with Ian and Barbara, yeah. tells stories about the people who are in it, mm. is under Barry Letts and Terence Sticks. Right. Where people like Joe Grant are slightly more the focus of the story yeah. Yeah. than companions before and after, and you can only do that if writers get together to mm. to discuss things, and if you 
because <clears throat> I don't think under Barry Letts the writers were getting together, but what they did under Barry Letts was they had the same mm-hmm. writers every year. Mm-hmm. So those writers knew where they stood and knew what they were doing and knew what was going on with the characters. Yeah. And it sounds like Barry Letts had a sort of an open door policy, so you didn't get Terry Nation submitting a script on half a page <coughs> and then disappearing off on holiday. Well, you got writers sort of popping in and and talking to and talking to the producer and the script editor. But yeah. this is but Cartmel was much Cartmel was that, but much more from the sounds of it. Cartmel was kind of sourcing these young new writers straight out of the, the writer's room. Well, he's no longer the guy who killed Doctor Who. Nowadays, no. he's the guy who... Um, <clears throat> he, he was the midwife to the modern series. Yes, yeah, so he reformed Doctor Who to allow it to survive yeah. the 90s. And it was only the BBC, of course, that... Yeah. And now I can't imagine Doctor Who not finishing in 1989 and coming back. So somebody asked a question at some point, if Doctor Who could have carried on, would you? Would that have been a good thing for you? And actually, I'm not sure I would have wanted it. I think it needed that that gap. Well, the thing is, <clears throat> when people ask that question, if Doctor Who hadn't finished in 1989, what do you think it would have been like? And people seem to think it would have been another ten years of JNT like Doctor mm. Who. But JNT may have done like one more year. And yeah. then you'd have had a different producer, yeah. and it would have changed. Yes. And then you'd have had another different producer, and it would have changed again. Yes. And it would have kept changing, and it would have kept getting more and more and more like what the series is now, mm. until eventually it became what the series is now. And I think it would have become what the series is now a good five or ten years earlier than the new series came back, if it had carried on. I think that's the way it was going. If people had taken what Andrew Cartmel was doing in the same way as people took what Barry Letts had been doing. Mm. So by the time you get to Philip Hinchcliffe and Graham Williams, they're doing a different thing from Barry Letts. Mm. But crucially, they're doing a different thing from Barry Letts, but taking on board what Barry Letts did. So by the time you got to 95 or something, you'd have been doing a different thing from what Andrew Cartmel was doing, Mm. but you would have taken that on board. So you'd have been telling stories about the yeah. companion as much as the Doctor mm. and we'd have arrived at somewhere like Rose by about by about a couple of years after Buffy started. Right. Yeah, Doctor Who in 1997 would have been Buffy meets the X-Files. <coughs> but still for a Saturday tea time audience. Maybe. Maybe. <clears throat> if the BBC had the capacity to do that. That's, well, the, that's the question. Yes, it might but... have been <clears throat> the crime traveller. In which case... Mm. Well, yeah, but you've got to say, the circumstances that took Doctor Who off air, if you're going to do a hypothetical, if it hadn't stopped, yes. you've got to take those circumstances out of the equation, haven't you? Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, it's a mute argument, isn't it? Mm. Anyway, eighth on the list yeah. <coughs> is Douglas Adams. Okay. On 12.4%. <clears throat> Surely gets the votes for... Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And yeah. And City of Death. <clears throat> City of Death, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not the biggest city. I don't think he's getting the vote for his script editing it's of a, Doctor Who. Yeah. Or for the Pirate Planet and Shadow. So the City of Death is really fantastically written and the dialogue is just amazing. 
it's not my favourite Doctor Who story um, because it feels like a sort of an oddity. It feels like it stands on its own. Well, that could and still be your favourite. We were yeah. talking last week about how things that stand on their own go high in your list. Yeah. The point rather is people are voting for Douglas Adams the name rather than what yes. he did on yeah, the yeah, programme, yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, and he is the, <clears throat> probably the most notable writer. Ever to write for yeah, the series. Until, until Neil Gaiman, Frank Cultural mm. Boyce. In fact, Neil Gaiman, <clears throat> Frank Cultural Boyce. Richard Curtis. And Richard Curtis, yeah. Yeah. With his... <clears throat> whatever he added to <laughs> Stephen Moffat's <laughs> well yeah you yeah. could say the same about well yeah. Yeah. yeah anyway Douglas Adams point is he's probably higher than he deserves to be and probably lower than he might have been given how big his name is yes. yeah but um yeah the question of whether he deserves to be inside the top 10 probably not really because let's face it if it if you took City of Death out of the equation and you were voting on Sharda and yeah. the Pirate Planet and something of that mm-hmm. <clears throat> quality, he'd be a lot lower, wouldn't he? Yes. So if the vote was for the best writers in Doctor <laughs> Regardless, Who... Regardless, if the vote then, was for the best then, writers who'd ever written for Doctor then Who... Potentially, even, although, although actually even outside of Doctor Who, I'm not the greatest, I've never quite understood... I mean, he's got a fantastic imagination. He's really intelligent. But... He's got a thing, yes. but <clears throat> whether he's actually a good writer, because yeah. it's all about, with Douglas Adams, it's all about the sentences as opposed yeah. to the construction of the plot and narrative. Yeah. He's, a great, um, he's a great writer of comedy sketches that can be loosely threaded together to make... A story. What looks like a story. Although <clears throat> the first Dirk Gently, Dirk Gently Solistic Detective Agency is a good novel. That's my that's my favourite. And City of Death of, uh... is basically a good story. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, yeah. It yeah. fits together nicely. Yeah. And that's because he had Graham Williams sitting outside the door, yes. feeding him coffee and alcohol and yes. telling him... I mean, with, the, with Doctor Who, you do get the feeling it was Douglas Adams, like, bashing it out in a panic. Yeah... In fact, everything Douglas Adams has ever written, it feels like it's Douglas Adams bashing it out in the panic. <clears throat> I don't want to know about Douglas Adams bashing yeah, it out in the panic, yeah, yeah, yeah. so let's move on. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in seventh place, then, um, on what was 13.5%, probably skewed slightly by... Oh, I'll name him. Okay. I promised on Facebook I'd name him, so the guy who voted late was Dan Price. I'm blaming you for this confusion. Is he from Australia? Why did I sound Australian? No, I'm, ju- I'm just... Because normally the Australians are the ones that cause problems. Okay. <clears throat> just we'll, in general. We'll hear from David Kitchen later. Okay. <laughs> in uh, seventh place, Chris Boucher. Okay. So to, just scraped in because he wrote three stories. Yeah, and Chris Boucher's the reason why I'm thinking maybe it should have been four stories because I don't... Because Chris Boucher's three stories are so close together, I don't think you get much of an idea of what Chris Boucher would have been like as a so Doctor p- Who writer. Potentially, what you're saying is he just didn't get a chance to write a bad story. So he. <laughs> well, if you look at the three stories, yeah, none of them are faultless. No, Face of Evil. Uh, it's got an interesting idea. Yeah, it doesn't stand up to logical scrutiny. No. 
The Robots of Death is a really good production. Yes. But actually, the story itself isn't up to much. Mm. Image of the Fandal, people really love it, but I think it's a bit of a mess. I was, I've been watching it recently. I watched it last night. Did well, you? I watched one episode last night. It's a bit of a mess, and the dialogue mm. isn't isn't the greatest, but... Well, some of the dialogue, some of the characters... See, this is the thing about Chris Boucher. He writes a particular style of dialogue and a particular type of character, mm. which, for three stories that are so close together, coming where they did really sings. Yes, yeah. Partly because of the production. With performances <clears throat> as well. Yes, there's something the performances. About, there's yeah, something the about production. his scripts that the writers, re- the um, the actors really, I mean, Dennis Lill. The rise to, yeah. Dennis Lill in Fendal really goes for it. Yeah. Even though the dialogue is very unlikely. They all really commit, oh, yeah, commit yeah. to it. There's no sort of taste. No, and the same as in Robots of Death. You get writers really committing to it. But I couldn't imagine Chris Boucher writing for Barry Letts, and I couldn't imagine Chris Boucher writing for Douglas Adams, no. the script editor. Yeah. So I think, so with Chris Boucher, <clears throat> you just there was a little zeitgeisty thing that happened. Yeah, and Chris Boucher happened to be the right person at the right time. Yeah, but outside of yes, the performances and that sort of dialogue and those kinds of characters mm. I don't think you could have carried on doing Doctor Who like that Yeah. The imagine direct- if Doctor Who had the tone of Blake Seven all of the time it would be horrible wouldn't yes. it yes yeah the direction of Fendal is fantastic most of that first episode has no incidental music behind it and it's George Spenton Foster yeah isn't it, it works really well I mean it's not the most dynamic it's not a filmic no. director but there are there are moments in there that work really well and are quite sort of creepy. But there are also bits like trying to talk to the cows and then you get introduced to the comedy yokels. Except the comedy yokels aren't that that yokely. So the uh, the council worker Ted Moss is not. I'm thinking of the not, Tylers. Uh, they don't really. Well, have... this is what I'm actually. This is why I was watching it because Ma Tyler's a witch. So I'm watching. Well, she doesn't really turn up until the second Hawthorne. episode. She's she... in the first. She's yeah, but they don't really come into no. it much until no. the second episode, do they? No, but she holds her own. I mean, she's got some degree of sort of what you would call agency in it. Oh, yeah. Not as much as Miss Hawthorne, but she does all right. I just think the elements in... I mean, oh, yes, people really like it, and yeah. I'm not saying it's by any stretch no, of the no, imagination no. a dreadful story. Yeah. I think the elements don't knit together as well no. No. as they do in The Robots of yeah. Death. Um. Yeah, I can... Chris Boucher was sort of on the edge of my list. Mm-hmm. Then I thought, no, if you're talking about favourite or even best Doctor Who writers, he's one of those ones that did something really special, like Douglas Adams did with City yeah. of Death, yeah. but doesn't really represent a Doctor Who writer. And in terms of whether he's actually a good Doctor Who writer, no, he wrote something that was really good yeah. at that moment, yeah. but not something so that would got, have survived more exposure in the series. So we've got different types of motivations <clears throat> for voting. We've got people like Douglas Adams who, who get votes for being Douglas Adams. You get people like Chris Boucher who get votes for writing maybe a particular story or three almost, you know, mm. or for not having written an awful story. And then you get votes for, as we'll probably find out, 
for people that actually changed the shape of Doctor Who. Mm. And they're actually, you know, big names in more than just writing three stories or an individual story. People <clears> that <throat> almost are synonymous with, with Doctor Who. Well, we get the first of those next. Okay. <clears throat> On about 14 or so percent, because mm-hmm. again, this is one that the numbers changed for, is in sixth place, David Whittaker, mm-hmm. who's kind of the godparent. Yeah, I think I voted for David Britton. I nearly did because of things like The Crusade and because of his influence across the first series. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe things like The Enemy of the World. But then he also did things like The Wheel in Space. He He did The Ambassadors of Death, the original Mm -hmm. drafts. Yeah. Which kind of proved that his Doctor Who didn't work outside the 1960s. Yeah. He did things like the rescue, which are nice, but serviceable. I mean, I've, I voted for him for two reasons. Firstly, because as you say, Godfather those, those early Doctor stories Who. to Godfather, but also <clears throat> Evil of the Daleks and Power of the Daleks. Yes. So he's yes. the person that, I mean, those are the, and Evil of the Daleks for a long time was my favorite Doctor Who story just from listening to the the audio and there's something about there's something about the way he treats Daleks that's so distinctive and so different from Terry Nation that I just think it's a it's a refreshing and slightly brave thing to do with the Daleks but I don't think either of them are particularly good stories I think they exist on their concepts I think and they, because he's a good enough writer that he disguises the story. I think I think <clears> taken so as with most early Doctor Who, I think taken as one block, listening to Evil of the Daleks in one block or Power of the Daleks in one block is not as good as if you listen consider it as an episodic story. <laughs> so in, in episode terms, they're incredibly well structured. So they reach climax the cliffhangers <clears> and the revelations that occur through them. But the stories themselves they sort of fall apart. But like Dalek's master, it's like Dalek's master plan. As one story, it doesn't. It's not really coherent. But as as a kind of a a twelve, however long, ten week long, twelve, yeah, twelve week long sort of adventure, which is stretched, then I'd imagine it'd be really exciting. Yeah, but David Whittaker, I think, is. I think there's a flashes of genius, mm. lots of really solid stuff. But I, I think the reason why he wouldn't have been in my top five, but he was right on the very edge of it, is because I just think there are people who've done it slightly better. Mm-hmm. I think David Whittaker, some of the, I mean, the Crusade is just amazing. Right. And if the rest of his stuff was of the quality of the Crusade, then yeah. Mm. But I mean, stuff like even The Enemy of the World, I think it's a good story. I think there's some decent characters in it, but I think when you look at it, sort of with a little bit of objectivity, mm. it's a bit, <clears throat> it's a bit spy-fi <sighs> light. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, oddly, Enemy of the World for me does the other does the thing that Evil of the Darks and Power of the Darks doesn't, and there's actually a coherent story. I said, I don't think it is. I think you, when you get to the bit in episode four, when you go to the base under the... Yes. I think it falls apart as a story. Right. I mean, it's a nice change of pace yeah. and there's some nice ideas, but yes. I think as a story, it just completely falls apart. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, the dialogue is really good. I mean, the dialogue in Evil of the Daleks <clears throat> is very good. I mean, it's, it's really... And in part, that's due to the performances. But given the crusade, you'd you'd guess that David Whittaker has... Oh, he knows has, his dialogue. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> he knows his way around a sentence. Yeah. <coughs> um, we're at the halfway point. Okay. Shall we read... Um, some other things that people have written in. I think. Because like last week, I'm going to do all these comments together. Um, Christopher Bryant said, in first place... Well, I know, actually, he did it in reverse order. Okay. In fifth place, Chris Boucher, who would be higher if we'd had more from him. <laughs> or lower. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, maybe. Yes, because I think if you'd have had a Christopher Bryant story, like in season 17... Boucher. Boucher. If we had a Christopher Bryant story. <laughs> well, yeah, it would have been amazing, <laughs> yeah. really, considering how old he would have been. Yeah. If we'd have had a Boucher story in season 17, yeah. it wouldn't have had the production. No. It would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. And so, the actors would have been... So, so Face of Evil just about gets away with looks it. good. But in season 17, Face of Evil oh, would dear. be... Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <clears throat> well, um, yeah. Uh, in fourth place, he has Terence Dix, who edged out Mac for existing beyond his era and giving us the five Doctors to boot. In a, well, we'll get to it. Jamie Matheson is in third place, who may never top his first year, which, of course, was Flatline and Mummy on the Orient yeah. Express. Um, in second place, he has Russell T. Davis for his vast contribution. <laughs> well, I'm sure Russell T. Davis has never heard it called that before. <laughs> <clears throat> and in first place, Robert Holmes for his Upazootic. Okay. Dylan Reese in first place has David Whittaker, the man who shaped the character and the mythos. Right. In second place, Stephen Moffat, the canon tampering legend. Mm-hmm. In third place, Robert Holmes, hit after hit, classic after classic. In fourth place, Russell C. Davis, ropey sci-fi, great characters and dialogue. Exactly who was needed to bring this show into the now. And in fifth place, Dylan Reese has Bob Baker and Dave Martin. Few get the infinite possibilities of the show more than them. Their ideas are more outlandish than anyone else. Shame their stories don't quite cut the mustard as all-time classics. Yes. <clears throat> well, no, though, I, you can't disagree with him in terms of imagination and pushing at the borders of what Doctor Who's capable of. Oh, yes. Bob Baker and yeah. Dave Martin... Right, great children's TV, and if you're yes. going to still consider Doctor Who a show that's primarily for children, the Bob Baker and Dave Martin stories are underrated. Yes, people say, "Oh, they throw an idea in and they don't explore it enough before they move on to the next one." When you're six and you're watching Doctor Who, you don't necessarily want the ideas to be explored to death before mm. you move on to the next one. You kind of like the idea. Bob Baker and Dave Martin do this great thing in quite a lot of their stories where episode one will be set in one place, episode two somewhere else, episode three a third place again, and then episode four goes back to the first place to wrap it up. And that happens in two or three of their stories. Mm. Underworld, The Invisible Enemy. Um, there are other examples. That's a brilliant thing yes. when you're a kid, seeing yeah. stories like that. Yeah. Don't Terry Nation obviously does it with the chase and the keys of Marinus. Yeah. <clears throat> anyway, that's a certain kind of Doctor Who that didn't get voted that highly. Yeah. Um, David Kitchen 
In first place, Chris Boucher. Three classics from three shots. Boucher writes with wit, imagination, and is brilliant at developing developing characters and locations with his dialogue alone. In second place, Robert Holmes. His work really is as good as the legends say. In third place, Malcolm Hulk. His stories are filled with great characters and a deep sense of humanity. Good left-wing writer. No wonder <laughs> David Kitchen voted for him. In fourth place, John Lucarotti wrote three of my favourite stories and defined the best of the historicals in my favourite era of the show. And in fifth place, David Whittaker shaped my favourite era of the show. I love all his stories and he's able to write wonderful character drama, The Rescue, historical drama, The Crusade, and sci-fi drama, The Two Dalek Stories, perhaps Doctor Who's most versatile and important writer. David also says, toughest, toughest top five yet, and I feel pained at not finding room for people like Terence Dix, Terry Nation, Douglas Adams, Christopher Bidmead, and Andrew Cartmel, and hope they all make the top ten. Well, Christopher Bidmead didn't. Did, uh, <clears throat> did David Kitchen think this was a classic series, an original series vote? Or is he um, I don't think he really considers the new series. Oh, okay. And he says, but in the end, had to get to five by strictly sticking to their writing. Um, he also asks a question, and since we already know that Terry Nation's way outside the top ten, I'll ask it now, okay. before we get into the top five. David Kitchen says, My question is, given that Terry Nation wrote stories like The Daleks, Dalek Invasion of Earth, Master Plan, Genesis, which are all regarded as classics pretty widely, indeed I think Genesis has topped a few Doctor Who magazine polls over the years, and is always a top ten finish, and next week we'll find out how it does in our poll of the classic series stories. As well as respected, imaginative stuff like The Keys of Marinus, and fun romps like The Chase and the Android Invasion, why don't we as fans give him a lot more credit? Well, and I think he partly answers his own question there, because Keys of Marinus isn't really respected. So I I don't... I like... I sort of like Genesis of the Daleks... I can watch Genesis of the Daleks happily. Was that it for you and Terry Nation? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, the Daleks Master Plan has... I've, I enjoyed the Daleks Master Plan, and that's half Terry Nation. Well, well it's quarter Terry Nation. Yeah, yeah, because quarter he, Donald Tosh and half on holiday. Dennis Spooner. But I think I respect... I respect the legacy of Terry Nation rather than I like his stories. Well, you like a particular kind of story that's a bit more high-functioning, and Terry Nation writes quite low-functioning stories, but he does it really, really well. Mm. And there's a big place in Doctor Who for low-functioning stories. Yeah. Doctor Who started as low-functioning stories, and it only introduced the higher-functioning stories later. Yeah. There's, I mean, okay, you've got people like John Lugarotti writing really interesting character dramas and things like the Aztecs. Mm. The Doctor Who starts out with people running away from cavemen. Yes. And then with the Daleks, it's a remake of the Time Machine, right? Mm. So Doctor Who starts out... I said once that um, Doctor Who is really... Back at the very, very start, the first two stories, they're really one million years BC and George Powell's The Time Machine, except done for real. Right. And those two stories are done with a great amount of seriousness, not a great deal of humour, and it's pulp fiction being treated as kitchen sink drama. George Powell? Uh, his Time Machine. 1960 oh. film. Oh, okay. 
as opposed to the H.G. Wells novel. Right, okay. <clears throat> so, um, what I'm saying is, it's like kitchen sink drama, it's yes. pulp fiction. Right, okay. And essentially, that's what Doctor Who has been ever since. Yes. It takes things that are really stupid and treats them seriously, mm. and takes things that are really serious and treats them frivolously. But it tries to find a balance in between all these things, and occasionally it goes off and does something a bit more highbrow. Yes. And occasionally it goes off and does things a bit more lowbrow. Mm. And Terry Nation is a great example of the series going off and doing things a bit more lowbrow. But there has to be a place for it in the series. Yeah. And things like Planet of the Daleks and Death of the Daleks, they're not thought of greatly by people in their 30s and 40s. But my God, when you're six or eight, there's nothing more exciting than Planet of the Daleks or Death of the Daleks. So there's a huge place for terrorization in the series. Mm. But shall we move into the... uh, Yes. Top five. And in fifth place, on about 16% of the vote, Terrence Diggs. Okay. <clears throat> so he didn't come higher no. than fifth. Yeah. But I guess when you look at who the top four are, that's probably fair. Um, he had a massive influence, along with Barry Letts, yeah. on what the show would be. Yes. Because they took something that was really struggling by the end of the 60s and said, well, this is a series that started off well enough but doesn't really know what it is. Yeah. And I think it's Barry Letts and Terrence Sticks who actually make Doctor Who what it is and what we recognise it as being nowadays. Yeah. I think, you know, that the roots of that are in the 60s, but I think it's Dicks and Letts who actually yeah. modify and consolidate that. I mean, I... But... Terence Sticks only actually wrote four Doctor Who stories. Yes. <coughs> I didn't vote for Der- Terence Sticks, and I was ready to sort of criticise him, but actually thinking back, he part wrote The War Games, which is brilliant, which I really like. I mean, for a ten-part story that I watch from beginning to end without... I Not think, I think right. well, maybe I'll watch four episodes of The War Games and watching the stages, and then I just keep on watching it. Yeah. And I think that's... That's as much Terence Dix as Malcolm Hulk. I think and that's probably and more script, Terence Dix. And the script <clears> editor, <throat> the script editing. He was a really humane script editor. He was a really collaborative. He wasn't a sort of a script editor that forced his own ideas or forced his own style on the series. You get the impression that he was a script editor that was quite unlike someone like Robert Holmes or Bid Mead or even Cartmel. Terence Dix was more sort of a more a kind of a collaborative writer, I think. Um, so, <clears throat> I think Holmes is a collaborator, it. but only if he finds like-minded spirits to collaborate with, like Robert Banks Stewart and Chris Boucher. Yeah, and the, the <clears throat> Horror Fang Rock is a really good, really well-written story. It's got a good structure to it. As as is stated to Kay, it just got a bit gutted by uh, Bidmead. And then actually, it didn't because they uh, took the Bidmead stuff out and went back to the original script, didn't they? Uh, <clears throat> do you mean the, the so the, the the technology bunker wasn't a Bidmead Bidmead edition? No, no. Okay, it was going to be a lot worse on the Bidmead, right? Okay. But the director threw Bidmead's version in the bin, right? And went back to Dick Dix's okay. version. I mean, the other reason I'd vote for him if I did vote for him would be for his his 
novel writing. So it's uh, well, the, yeah. the legacy of him bringing Doctor Who from the past to me in in the target novelizations. I don't think he got much of a. <clears throat> I think obviously he got some, but I don't think he got too much of a sentimental vote. Otherwise, mm. he would have been a lot higher. Yeah. yeah. Robot is a sort of mid-level story. Mm. Five Doctors is very well thought of, but partly for the more for the nostalgia than for the story. Yeah. Although I think it's yeah. well enough written. I think the issue with Terence Dix is he always comes along. He always comes across to me as a bit of a sitcom writer who happens to be writing Doctor Who. A lot of his characterization is nicely done. Yeah. But his characters tend to be just that step away from being real people. They're a bit yeah, I think a bit like characters out of I always say it last of the summer wine or something like that. I think possibly the the problem Terence Dix has got is he didn't die like Robert Holmes has died. <clears throat> so Terence Dix has been quite quite involved has been involved with the series ever since and he's goes to conventions so he's got a thing a bit like um john pert we had in the early 90s of being sort of ever present at doctor who events and sort of familiarity breeds a kind of a you you tend to take him for granted i think so maybe maybe in years to come it might become a bit more it might get that sort of mystique i don't know i don't think so <clears throat> I think you look at Robot and you look at Miss Winters and Jellica and that, mm. and especially if you look at Professor Kettlewell, mm. Robot's a great runaround. There's no actual threat. Right. Horror of Fang Rock's uh, a great sort of drawing room character piece. Yeah. But it's not really, again, I mean, as directed by Paddy Russell, she brings it to it. But in terms of the story, they're all rejects from Agatha Christie. Yeah. Uh, if you look at State of Decay, so many, so much of the characterization there is either bumbling scientists mm. or overarch villainy. Yeah. And again, I don't feel there's much of a sense of. I, the thing about Terrence Dick stories is they're great knockabout runabouts, mm. but never at any point in a Terrence Dick story do you think, well, hang on, what if this was for real? Yeah. Whereas you do. With a lot of the other writers, mm. I find Terence Sticks as the polar opposite of Chris Boucher. For right. example, Chris Boucher, he writes a certain kind of character, which means that a certain kind of ar- actor can come in and bring those characters really to life. Mm. But you know, if you watched um, Robot next to the Robots of Death, you'd be hard pressed to say tonally that they're the same program. Yeah, I just think there's a I mean, I like Terence Dix, don't get me wrong, but I always think of Terence Dix as, um, he writes a version of Doctor Who that's cosy, whereas somebody like Boucher writes a version of Doctor Who that's edgy. Yeah. And there's a balance to be struck, but like I was saying, I think Chris Boucher is too edgy and not enough cosy. Yeah. Which is where I think when you get the introduction of the Tylers in Image of the Fendal, it becomes really weirdly balanced mm. because I don't think it meshes with the rest of the story. Yeah. And Terrence Dix is too cosy and not edgy enough. <clears throat> Let's move on to somebody who does cosy and edgy then. Um, and he was, well, he's on about 22.5%. In fourth place, it's Malcolm Hulk. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you could have almost talked about them together. Uh, they're they're pretty well 
tied in with one another. They are, but I think they're very, very different. Yeah. Terence Dix writes stuff that slightly pokes fun at the idea of politics and sociopolitics and mm. and slightly pokes fun at things like Barry Letts's sort of um not obsession, um esoteric interests. In the yeah. Malcolm Hulk has those interests and bring those interests into his Doctor Who. Yeah. I think Terence Dix's Doctor Who is pretty much almost without interest. So what are we talking about with Malcolm Hulk? Invasion of the Dinosaurs, um, Silurians, Colony in Space. Colony in Space. Oh, the Faceless Ones. The Faceless Um, Ones. Frontier in Space. Frontier in Space. So it's sort of a mixed, it's still a mixed bag. I mean, Invasion of Dinosaurs is pretty high on my list of Doctor Who stories at the moment. Well, it's a mixed bag in terms of how successful people think they are. I don't think it's that mixed, to be honest with you. I think Mm. Colony in Space loses a bit in the production. I think it's a good story. Mm. And I think if you look at all of his stories, they're all about people, but... Real people with real motivations, unlike yeah. say, and this is what sets him apart from Terence Dix. I can't yeah. believe in any of the motivations of the characters in Terence Dix stories. They're a lot of fun to watch, yeah, but I can't believe in them. Malcolm Hulk writes people I can believe in, doing things in situations that I can believe those people would do in those yeah. situations. So, in the War Games, which is probably the one you'd want to look at if you're looking at Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dix and how. Different they are. I don't think it's a very good example, though, is it? But you get... So you get touches of the real people in the individual time zones. So the the historical humans caught in the time zones have a sort of a sense of reality. And then you get the time... The, the war lords. Yeah, yeah. And they, so they feel like the Dick's characters. Mm. And then the Malcolm Hulk bits are actually, as you would expect from a left-wing writer, the actual humans caught up in this, in this kind of right-wing trap. Yeah, of of being forced to fight, so maybe that's maybe the war games is the perfect kind of distinction between Hulk and and Tick maybe because you've got right wing and left wing, <clears throat> but also it becomes kind of muddy because once you get but you're thinking about the earlier episodes. By the time yes. you get the yeah. uh, the Mexican bandits and stuff, it's all going a bit Terran sticks. Yes, yeah, I guess so. so. <clears throat> but then you get another layer of the Time Lords and the warlords so you've still got that constant sort of it's almost like there's always a god above you well even gods have gods and that's very dicks as well yeah because i mean as much as people in uh fans look back at it now and say oh it was the first time lord story yeah look at the actual time lords in the war games and it's a bit thin uh yeah yeah or ethereal rather than thin so well, they're, yeah, they're but, kind of <clears throat> trying to have their cake and eat it. They're trying to show you the Time Lords, but still keep them as a mystery. But and what you end up with is something that doesn't do either. But Malcolm Hulk, uh, that's why it's Terence Dix, yeah. to me. Mm. I look at it, I see Terence Dix in those Time Lords, but I don't see Malcolm Hulk. Well, maybe that is the story of the writing, because we know that <coughs> by the end of the War Games, they were writing it pretty much a week before... Broadcast or recording. I mean, so, pretty much imagine Terence Dix has more or less taken over yes, by this yeah. point. So the early the ones, the early that. ones were Malcolm Hulk, and then, mm. and then Terence Dix. You know, when <clears throat> when the effluent hits the the um, turning thing, the aficionado. <laughs> um, Malcolm Hulk. Um, though 
as much as Terence Dix is regarded as, you know, the king of the targets, mm. when people look back at the ones they really remember fondly, yeah. they tend to be Malcolm Hulk ones, the mm. Sea Devils, the Cave Monsters, the Dinosaur Invasion, mm-hmm. even um, the Doomsday Weapon, Colony right. in Space. Yeah. It's a really good story. Mm-hmm. It's just not a terribly good TV production. Yeah. Too ambitious, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Um. So I, I, I think maybe Malcolm Hulk gets as much of the sentimental vote as Terence Dix does. Yeah. I mean, I think they're both well placed in the poll. <clears throat> I think they're, they're. I think it's fitting that they're placed together, even though they're they're, they're sort mm. of different styles. But they have similar kind of positions in the history of Doctor Who. Well, Malcolm Holt there was on twenty two and a half percent, and then you go up to about thirty six percent before you get into the top three. So this top three was way out, right? And in third place, it's Russell T Davis, okay, who brought Doctor Who back. Yeah, <clears throat> and obviously there's a massive amount of respect and sentimentality about voting for the guy who brought Doctor Who back. Yeah. Um there's a real split now over how good it was as opposed to how successful it was. Mm. There's a lot of people who are really big fans of Russell T. Davis's writing and what he did with Doctor Who. But Russell T well, in terms of Russell T. Davis and Stephen Moffat and in terms of what I was just saying about Terence Dix and Malcolm Hulk, I think that, and it's not a perfect illusion because their strengths and weaknesses aren't necessarily the same things, mm. but Russell T. Davis is more the Terence Dix right. and Stephen Moffat is more the Malcolm Hulk. Yeah. In that Malcolm Hulk had a thing and that was the thing he did. And Stephen yeah. Moffat has a thing. Whereas with Russell T. Davis, his thing is the characters. Right. Just as in Terence Dix's case, his thing was writing an enjoyable romp. Right. As it were. Yeah. And there's something a little bit lightweight about the narrative mm. in that case. So as Terence Dix's stories feel lightweight next to Malcolm Hulk's, mm. I think Russell T. Davis's can feel a bit lightweight next to Stephen Moffat's. Yes. I mean, it's not... <clears throat> it's not... Um, any surprise that it was Stephen Moffat who was winning all the awards when he was writing for Russell T Davis. Yes, yeah. Um, so, so Stephen Moffat produces fireworks. Russell T Davis produces viewers. Yeah, it's, it's not so much that. It's that the way in which he produces viewers tends to be at the expense of something in the stories. Yeah. There's a... If you look at things like his finales, and I suppose if you're talking about showrunners, the finales is sort of the sort of full stop that is the place where you need to look. Yeah. If you look at his finales, greatly speaking, they don't really add up to a lot of sense in terms of the narrative. Mm. But in terms of the characters, they make great sense. Yeah. But um, <clears throat> I guess what I'm saying is the reason he's on 36% rather than in the top two, mm. is because if he'd have tied his narratives up as well, yeah. then everybody would say, oh, well, great respect for that. But as it is now, I think he gets the respect for what he did for the series and 
doing what he did with the characters to make it popular. Mm. But the people who like the sci-fi in Doctor Who look at Russell T. Davis and think, well, I can't really see any. Maybe. Perhaps. I mean, <clears throat> so I think the the smartness of Russell T. Davis's writing is the recognition of not just how to write popular television, but how to take this this <clears throat> old product and bring it back. And so... It's less about the individual stories he writes. It's more about the achievement of bringing it back. Well, yes, but that's what I'm saying. This is being voted for by Doctor Who fans, not by the general public. The general public would probably have put Russell T. Davis at the top of this list. Mm. Doctor Who fans are going to say, well, he might have done great things for Doctor Who, but in terms of whether what he did was great Doctor Who, probably not because it ignores a lot of what it was that made Doctor Who what it was. Yeah. And Moffat has the advantage over Russell T. Davis in that... He comes to a programme that's already popular. Well, also, he's he's got the, 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 two, the two sides. So he's been a writer on the series, and he becomes the showrunner. So he's got those individual episodes where he can shine, and he's then the showrunner where he can control... And so he gets those two sides. Russell T. Davis never had that. He always had the sort of, I have to grind out mm. a certain number of episodes per year and I have to control these. If well, also, I think... If Russell T. Davis had that opportunity, if Russell T. Davis, say, contributed maybe two or three stories to the Stephen Moffat era, I'm not saying they'd be brilliant, but that might have given him more space well, I think this to is write the something thing. interesting. <clears throat> and... I don't think Russell T. Davis could... Well, Russell T. Davis is all about... He's not about the plot. He's yeah. about the characters. Yeah. So to get Russell T. Davis to come in and write a Doctor Who episode with somebody else's characters, when somebody comes in and writes an episode for a showrunner, yeah. you're writing with their characters but bringing, but bringing your plot to yes. their characters. Yeah. But Russell T. Davis doesn't do plot. He does characters. So he couldn't write for anybody else. But, we do, but he, he doesn't do it when he's showrunning. But that doesn't mean he couldn't do it. That just means that when he's no, the showrunner, he does it. He's Have the you ever seen any of his the... other shows? Well, I mean, he has tended to to produce shows that are based around character. But again, that doesn't mean he can't do it. That just means. Oh, I don't know. Just if you look that... at, I've seen all of his other stuff, right? And but his other stuff is <clears throat> it's kind of separate from Doctor Who because he's his own personal work. Things like um, Cucumber and um, Queer as Folk and Bob and Rose, they're all sort of very personal work and are all character studies, as you say. But that doesn't mean that if he's asked to write a 45-minute episode of a science fiction drama, he won't just write a really fantastic Stephen Moffat-y plot. I don't think he would. I don't okay. think he could. He might. Well, I don't think that's okay, why he doesn't. Okay, so, so I'd agree he might not, but I don't think he could. I don't think. I think that would be that's doing him a disservice. I think he could. I just I don't, think, don't he think, would. think he's that kind of writer. I think he's a really. I think he's got the potential to be a very adaptable writer. He just doesn't have to be because he produces his own personal work. I think to say that you don't think he could is sort of, it's kind of dismissing. There's missing the potential of him. The fact that he hasn't done it doesn't mean he can't do it. The fact he hasn't done it means 
he's a really popular writer who does his own. Right, when work. I say I don't think he could, yeah, doesn't mean I don't think he'd be capable of it if he was forced to do it. It means I don't think. So what you mean is you don't think he would rather than could? No, not so. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think. Yes, not. But both. I mean both. Right. I mean I don't think he would right. because I don't think he could. Okay. <clears throat> I don't Do you, think, you mean, like, morally speaking, or he wouldn't compromise his... No, his... I don't think it's in his armoury to write a narrative, a plot for somebody else's narrative. So I don't think he'd accept... I think I don't think it's in his armoury to do it. Right. I think he could make it part of his armoury if he forced himself, but I don't think he's likely to force himself so he wouldn't take on the commission. Okay, fine. You must understand that distinction. No. <laughs> you, he doesn't have it in his armory, but he could make it part of his armory if he wanted. If he forced himself, <clears throat> that just means he does have it in his potentially in his armory. No, there's, well, that's there's, the word potentially. Well, yeah, okay, right. Uh, the day we're born, all of us could grow up to be doctors. So potentially, right. it's in our arm, armory to be a doctor. But by the time you get to twenty-five, if you've not gone to medical school, you're not going to become a doctor. Okay. So Russell T. Davis is so far into his career, yes. he's not something that he's now capable of doing. Maybe once upon a time, but at this stage in his career, it's not something he's okay. Capable I, I of doing. I disagree with that. I think I think at this stage of his career, he's such an experienced writer that, if necessary, he could easily adapt to other people's... But he's experienced styles. at one kind of writing. I don't, <clears throat> I don't think there is experienced at one kind of writing. You're either a writer or... If no. A, a writer can just adjust their style. I mean, it's not... No, I don't think that's true at all. OK. I don't think you can just say a writer is a writer and they can therefore write anything. Right, OK. I think that's... Well, not everything, but... <laughs> But there's a difference between writing anything and writing a character-based drama and a plot-based drama. You're saying that Russell T. Davis couldn't shift into a plot-based drama? Basically. Okay. I think that's nonsense. <laughs> I, no, think he but, could, I think he could very easily do it. But No, but you're missing the point there. It's not... Okay. I'm not saying he couldn't... I'm saying he couldn't shift into somebody else's plot-based drama. Right. Okay. That's not the way it works. I think I think if Russell T. Davis had written maybe three or four stories for Stephen Moffat, then he probably would have written character-based Russell T. Davis-style stories. If Stephen Moffat had said, could you write me a Stephen Moffat-style story, please, Russell, and Russell T. Davis agreed to do it, whether he would have agreed or not, that's this is a hypothetical then Russell T. Davis could have done that very easily. I don't think there's a magic behind it. I think Russell T. Davis studied literature. He's a really intelligent person. He knows how stories work. He knows how to construct stories. And the he fact also that he's got, the fact that he's got his own style, what he's capable of, and hence... The fact that he's got his own style means that that's what he turns to, that's what he, he does, because that's what he's known for. That doesn't mean that... He doesn't do that, that thing that he because that's he what he's known a, for. He can't write a pastiche of somebody else's style. He doesn't do that thing because that's what he's known for. He's known for that thing because that's what he does. No, he didn't start by doing those personal those personal dramas. He started by writing in other people's universes. He comes from 
He comes from the when? soap opera world. He wrote for Coronation Street. He wrote for Crossroads. He wrote way, for, way, way back. He wrote when? for the Grand. But that's where he came. That's the what Grand I'm saying. He invented. He came. He invented the Grand. Okay, so, but originally he wrote for other people's products, as most writers did. Yeah, but look and at then what he, he did produced with his those own, products. And then he produced <clears throat> his own, his own, his own material, he which did. was very, very popular. <clears throat> so he carried on writing his own personal material. But look at what he did with those things. He didn't stay on Coronation Street for very long at all, but he did things like, what was it called? Why don't you? Yeah. And he took a magazine program and turned it into a drama, a fiction. Yeah. Right. Which was completely turned the, he completely turned. Okay. So, so he just, was, let's just go back to the, the basic point that <clears throat> I think Russell T. Davis is an experienced enough and an intelligent enough writer to be able to write a, a Stephen Moffat-style story very easily. I don't think that's... That's not a controversial statement, because he's an experienced writer. I couldn't write a Russell, uh, Stephen Moffat-style story, and I couldn't write a Russell T. Davis-style story. But Russell T. Davis has has had so okay. much experience. Well, and is so I, intelligent I'm going to have that, to agree to differ with you. Okay, well, we'll see what the... I mean, people are welcome to write in to... Well... Su- suggest whether Russell T. Davis is a one-note writer. <laughs> one I'm not writer. saying he's a one-note writer. Okay. I'm saying he... All right. I've said it. Okay. <clears throat> and the weight of evidence is he hasn't. Okay. And when he did try and write a Stephen Moffat story, you got Midnight. Really? You think that was him trying to write a Stephen Moffat style story? That's generally the thinking behind how Midnight turned out. A chamber piece featuring mostly characters. Yes. A character-based chamber piece. Yes. Isn't that, isn't that the, almost the definition of a Russell T. Davis story? Well, and that's <laughs> what you get. That's my point. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> the idea was that he wrote... We talked about this. Yes. The idea that he was, he was writing a high-concept children's playground conceptual threat story right. like Stephen Moffat does... And what do you get? A chamber piece with a load of characters okay. interacting with okay. each other. Okay. <clears throat> In second place, on roughly 60% of the vote, Stephen Moffat. Okay. <clears throat> so that I, is... I wonder who came first then. Yeah. Well, that is a whole 25% up from Russell T. Davis. Yes. Well, and... All right, the thing I said about Ross T. Davis was he does the character really well, but he doesn't do the plot really well. Yeah. Stephen Moffat doesn't do the character as well as Russell T. Davis. Mm. And <clears throat> he might not do the plot as well as some people would like him to do the plot. Yeah. But essentially, Stephen Moffat does the character really well, and he does the plot really well. Yeah. And that's why he's high on the list, because he <sighs> is in that position whereby... He's getting the best of both worlds. I mean, it's difficult to... It's difficult, so if we're thinking of the motivations to vote... Yes, so there'll be a number of votes comparing him to Russell T. Davis and voting along with that. So the reason why he's got more than Russell T. Davis is because people think he's a better writer than Russell T. Davis. But also he's a more recent... He's had a more recent impact. So we've just lived through six years. We've lived through the anniversary with Stephen Moffat. So I think Stephen Moffat was higher on my voting than Russell T. Davis. And that's not because that's not because I think Stephen Moffat is a better writer than Russell T. Davis. I think Stephen Moffat 
has if had we more, go back, has more notable successes recently. No, Stephen Moffat's a better Doctor Who writer. Yeah, than I don't think, no, I don't think that either. I I think I think Doctor Who's had such a consistency in quality of writing from well, 2005 onwards. Are we talking about what the people who voted think, or what you so think? So I'm th- I'm trying to well, I'm thinking about what I'm thinking and trying to work out if that maps on to what I think people who voted think. And well, part, the people who the voted reason, put him yeah. in second and gave him 60%. So the, the reason the reason I voted him above Russell T. Davis is because um, a lot of his stories are more fresh in my mind and he's also got the, the 50th anniversary, which was a, a big well, success. Well, who else did him. you vote for? I can't remember. I think I voted for Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis in the, the top five. And who um, else? Uh, Robert Holmes, I think. Um, David Whittaker. David Whittaker. Well, are those stories fresh in your mind? Are those recent stories? No, because because obviously the old so obviously the old series and the new series are separate entities in my mind. I don't think I don't think of it as a continuum of writers. So I, when I was thinking of who to vote for, I thought which old series writers would I vote for and which new series writers would I vote for, and then I brought them in. I mean, Stephen Moffat and David Whittaker are almost incomparable to have them on the same in the same vote is is sort of incomparable. So you have to have an element of distinction and then you bring them back together in the end. Well, yes, but... So, so <coughs> David with, Whittaker with my takes vote, the... Yeah. Well, as you were talking about with the Daleks, David Whittaker takes the building blocks of the series and finds mm. something new to do with it. Yeah. Can't you compare that to Stephen Moffat? And Russell T. Davis. Well, yes. Yeah. So now we have compared yes. them. Yes, so they are, they are comparable, but... What you were saying is David Whittaker from years ago. What I'm saying is there are there are people who voted for Russell T Davis and people who voted for Stephen Moffat. Well, extracting that out of the and other there are people votes. who voted for both of them, and you're one of them. Yes, yeah, but I put one on top of the other, one above. Well, the that's other. because I said no tied votes. No, no, no. What I'm saying is I put one above the other. Because Stephen Moffat is fresher in my mind, because I was watching Stephen Moffat's stories uh, a year ago. Yeah, but that's, that's on not a first, criteria. On first broadcast. But you wouldn't have put him above Russell T. Davis if he was fresher in your mind, but you weren't enjoying his stories. Um, no, but they're more memorable. I think they're more memorable. And as I said, he has the advantage of having had those individual stories within the, within the run of a different showrunner. So I think Stephen Moffat... But those aren't the ones that are fresher in your mind because they're the ones that were around... So as I said, it's a combination of the two things. So it's a combination of the fact that Stephen Moffat... So it's got nothing whatsoever to do with what he's like as a writer. No, it's partly that because he's... Oh, you I think, think people so, voted Stephen Moffat second only partly so, because of what he's like as a writer? So I think... I think his quality of a writer means that he gets second place. I'm talking about why he got voted above Russell T. Davis. That's what I mean. So Stephen Moffat is obviously a quality writer. Russell T. Davis is obviously a quality writer. They've both achieved a high place in the votes. One has, by your figures, 60% of the votes. The other has 35% of the votes. I think that some of that percentage difference comes from the fact that Stephen Moffat is, firstly, the more recent of the the showrunners and fresh in people's minds. Secondly, has the advantage of having the individual stories during Russell T. Davis's run. 
And obviously, also, some people think he's a better writer than Russell T. Davis. But for the purposes of this podcast, I'm looking for reasons as to why people voted Stephen Moffat above Russell T. Davis beyond just they think he's a better writer. I'm not saying he's a better writer. Okay. I'm saying he is a better Doctor Who writer because he does character okay. and plot. Okay. Whereas so, Russell T. Davis did character. So what I'm doing is I'm looking for other reasons beyond he's a better Doctor Who writer. And I'm looking for the other reasons. That's all I'm doing. Okay. Because that's because that's the point of the podcast, isn't it? You look for you look for well, different different angles on it. Otherwise, we could just say, so people thought he was a better Doctor Who writer than Russell T. Davis. Oh, so yes, who came and then first? you discussed that. Yeah, well, that's well, what we I'm didn't doing. discuss that, did we? Because you said, well, no, and then said something else. I didn't say no. I said, maybe it's to do with this and this and this. As opposed to what I said. You dismissed what I said. What did you say again? I've lost track. In first place... On over 80% of the vote, it was 80% until he got another first place, is Robert Holmes. I prefer Dr. Adams. Is that Robert, your... Robert Holmes is obviously going to get first place, and I think I voted him in first place. Ah, yes. And I think I think Robert Holmes has... has the, the great he got thing, over The 80%. great thing about Robert Holmes is... As as a script editor, he's great. As an individual story writer, he's great. And as a rewriter of other people's stories, he's great. So there are a few stories later on in his run, which I would He's watch. not perfect, though. No. Most no. of his stories end pretty averagely. Yes. So they yeah. bundled him into the death splicing machine yeah, yeah or yeah. some fatuous deus ex machina mm-hmm. or yeah, other yeah um his early stories the two he wrote and patrick trout and yeah aren't really up to much no his later stories after about 1977 yeah caves of androzani notwithstanding generally aren't up to much yeah well certainly after 1978 the rebus operation so, he had a golden period so which happened to last about eight years. So Russell, T- so um, Robert Holmes, his stories on a, a character basis and dialogue, and atmosphere and tone, and also the way he pastiches horror movies are great. They're not entirely consistent. They're not entirely coherent. But this is why, whereas <clears throat> Stephen Moffat has this kind of intricate, beautifully constructed set of stories this is why comparing old series and new series have to be slightly separated because well, yes. Robert Holmes is writing a different type of television he's a different writer from Stephen Moffat writing 45 minute one shot stories is different from writing episodic television except he's not mm. and Mike and Robert Holmes is at the top of the pole because he writes good Doctor Who Right. In the 1970s. Yeah. Robert Holmes' Doctor Who wouldn't stand up to as great a scrutiny today. Mm. And this is what I was trying to get into with Stephen Moffat. Stephen Moffat writes great Doctor Who's, great Doctor Who in the 21st century. What what makes Robert Holmes' Doctor Who great Doctor Who in the 1970s is because he nails what it is about the series that makes the series the series. In other words, it's not about how things resolve. It's about the journey rather than the destination. It's about, as um, 
Philip Hinchcliffe or whoever it said, was said, scaring the bejesus out of the young'uns. Robert Holmes grasps the metal of what Doctor Who is about and goes about writing it to a degree that other people haven't been able to. Yeah. Partly because he doesn't bring anything else to it. Hmm. So Terence Dix brings this slightly cosy sort of sitcom-y type feel to it. Malcolm Holt brings a bit of politics to it. Bob Baker and Dave Martin bring this sort of really vivid, over-imaginative excess to it. Robert Holmes doesn't bring anything to it. He just walks into what Doctor Who is and mm. does that really mm. well. Yeah. He only he gets Doctor Who, but he's also a, tele, he's a great television writer of the time, just as Stephen Moffat is a great television writer of this time. Robert Holmes. Robert Holmes is a great television writer of the time, episodic television writer. He would have done... But what are your other examples to qualify that statement with? Nightmare Man. Have you seen The Nightmare Man? Yes. It's not that great. It's good. It's Yeah, but it's but, not great television. But looking at the way he writes... It would have been completely forgotten if his writes, name wasn't Looking on at it. the way he writes Doctor Who and imagining him writing some of the other series at the time, I think he is a good television writer for the time of episodic television. I think he's a good Doctor Who writer. I think he's a good television writer of episodic, of that type of episodic television. Well... That kind of sort of... If he if he gave give him if you gave him maybe soap opera to write, I think he would do really. I mean, he'd be doing really good work in soap opera. I'm not sure soap he would. I don't opera. think he's his background. The characters, to do that. the dialogue. <clears throat> and remember, you'd have you'd have he'd be writing. He'd be part of a writing team. Um, but um, Stephen Moffat is a great television writer of today, because he understands television that gets rewatched. And rewatched and gets um, watched on catch up and watched on DVD and and studied. Robert Holmes wasn't making television to be rewatched or studied. He was making disposable television. But that's that's the distinction. I think that's what makes them good writers of the time, and why why they are comparable in terms of in in if you take the 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 time they were writing into consideration. I don't... Well, yeah, maybe. I don't think Robert Holmes is actually remembered for anything else. And the only reason people remember no, anything he else he did is because yeah. of his, who he is. Yeah. I don't but, think Nightmare Man sold a single yeah, but, DVD to anybody who wasn't a Doctor Who fan. But the but the sheer, the sheer quality of his work on Doctor Who, the dialogue and the the atmosphere... If he had have done other things, you can use that as an indication for what he was doing. It's not just, but I don't think it's not could, just. I don't think it transposes to other things. But you can see how it could transcend Doctor Who. He's not just trapped within the world of Doctor Who. You can see how how there would be ways of of breaking out of Doctor Who for him, but he just never did because he didn't think he could. Well, the reasons why he didn't are uh, uh, separate to could he. Yeah. Oh, I'm not necessarily sure, but okay, you're telling me he was all these great things, except he didn't really know himself. <clears throat> I, I, I'm pretty sure 
he wouldn't have been as successful with other things as he was with Doctor Who because I just think he had this really fundamental understanding of what Doctor Who was okay. and was really, really good at doing that thing. Okay. And I don't think... And I'm not saying that wouldn't translate to no kind of success anywhere else. Yeah. But I don't think he would have had the success anywhere else as he had on Doctor Who. And that's partly why he's so successful as Doctor Who because it was the perfect marriage of the format and the writer. Right. And uh, and this is partly why he is so way out at the top of the list, mm. because a lot of these other writers are remembered for other things, which kind of waters down your understanding and appreciation of them. Right. Whereas Robert Holmes isn't really known for anything else at all. And like I say, people will... He did, like, two episodes of Blake 7, or three, maybe. Yeah. But people... Those only stand out to people because they know it's Robert Holmes, right? Yeah. And he did The Nightmare Man, which was completely forgotten until somebody realised it was Robert Holmes and released it on DVD. Mm. But that was four weeks of television. Robert Holmes is synonymous with Doctor Who, and that helps his reputation. Okay. Because it's not just that he's really good at doing the series, but the series is really good at being him. Okay. Uh, you don't agree. Um, I'd have to think about it. <clears throat> right, in that case, <laughs> we're just going to leave it till next week when we will be doing the top 10 classic series stories. Oh. Possibly with more of us, possibly not. Any indication of how the voting is going for that? Do you mean, shall I say which story is winning it? No. Just is there a spread? What do you imagine? What do you anticipate? The, I mean, there's so many stories. Uh, <laughs> potentially voted for there's a top 25 right, there's about yeah. 65 stories that have been voted for right yeah. the voting is spread enough that there's enough to do a top 25 that's okay. defined yeah that's what I was thinking so it's not like the writers were actually actually it's a fairly sort of clear top 5 well there are a lot fewer writers mm, exactly oh no they're spread in the stories there's um there's an outright winner right yeah. by some distance yeah. There are things like that. Okay. We'll find out next week okay. what these things are. It looked for a time like there might be a few surprises, but there weren't. <laughs> so, yeah, listen next week for, to find out if or not there were a few surprises. Um, we should just rig the boat and just put Twin Dilemma on top. Just <laughs> When I say there's no surprises, what I mean is there was after... Um, about a third of the voting had come in. Yeah. Caves of Androzani was in last place of all the things that had been voted for. Okay. Well, now that two-thirds more of the voting has come in, Caves of Androzani is no longer in last place. For example. What we should do in autumn, and this is a bit hating to love, we should do the bottom, the the worst I'm not doing polls of the worst things. It'd be interesting to talk about. We do because we're positive about things. I'm not. I'm not suggesting why they're rubbish. Suggesting why they're good. Well, I've kind of done a book about it. I know, but you know, it'd be interesting to do a podcast. Well, we have previously oh, about three right. times. All oh, right, okay. We did it ourselves a few weeks ago. Did we? Yes. Ah, oh. nice one. <laughs> right. Until next week, then. By which point, we'll presumably both have slept. <clears throat> uh, I was Jr. I was Matt. And we'll speak again soon. Bye.